this a second coming? Is there a third coming? What, what is this? What, you know, where's the judgment and all that stuff? There's a lot of, a lot of questions still about what's going to happen. Although I, I don't, I'm not concerned about that. Um, it doesn't concern me. You know, when Jesus first showed up there in, in his first advent or his first coming, there was a lot of confusion that time too. But you know what? God had it handled. It was all okay, right? <laughs> Uh, and it'll be okay for us as well. And that's part of the encouragement that Paul gives to the, those believers in Thessalonica. In Second Thessalonians that we're reading through right now that we'll be finishing up this week, um, as you guys read through there, Paul again is explaining, because these people in Thessalonica, there's some people who are saying, yeah, Jesus already came. He already came the second time. He's already been here. And there's a lot of confusion going on, apparently. And so, um, and so Paul writes to say, no, no, no. You'll know when it happens. You, there will be no doubt. You will not miss him. The whole world will know. The whole world will hear. The whole world will see it. Um, everyone will know when it happens, the rapture this, the, uh, of Christ and how that happens in the second coming and all that and, and the judgment we, I won't go into today. But, um, but he is writing to encourage them. It's okay. He hasn't come yet. And he talks about the man of lawlessness who will be coming and the, the, the increasing in the rebellion and all this stuff. He says, yeah, don't worry about it. You're, you're not going to miss it. Uh, but be ready, be prepared for it. Okay, well, that was kind of last week, and this week what I wanted to do, Clay um, had set up our reading schedule um, here a couple of months ago, and he had us going right into Malachi, and there's good reason to go into Malachi. Some of you may refer to him as Malachi, the only Italian prophet, but it's, it's Malachi. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I heard that a long time ago. I'm sorry about that. Um, kind of corny. Um, but, uh, Malachi goes right in, and, and especially in chapter 3, and starts talking about the, the, the second coming of Christ and, and really about, the, uh, about the, the, really the second coming, not just the rapture, but the second coming of Christ. So that's the reason why that, all that's p- kind of put together. Let me warn you as you go through it a little bit, though. Let me think. Are we going to read this first today? I, uh, I don't think we are. In the Old Testament, a lot of times the prophets had a lot of difficulty kind of seeing in what God was revealing to him about the first coming of Christ, the rapture, and the second coming of Christ and judgment. Usually in, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament prophets, those are all happening like sometimes within the same verse. You know, they didn't get the distinction, and, and you know, how would they? They, they, they just hadn't, didn't have the full revelation of God at that time. So you'll see sometimes where it says, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to be full of grace, and there's going to be judgment and, and, and all this stuff, and no one will stand and all that stuff. So you kind of have that all kind of thrown in there together, and so don't be surprised when you see that. Uh, but anyway, if you have uh, Malachi open there, let me, just, let me tell you just a couple of things. One is Malachi means my messenger or the Lord's messenger. Um, and he was a messenger, the prophet. Um, he is the last Old Testament prof- prophet. That's the reason he's last in the Old Testament. Sometimes things are by date. Sometimes things are not by date in the Old Testament, but in this case it is. Um, and let me tell you what had gone on with Israel. You guys know the history of Israel. Uh, they, they, uh, they were kind of born. They, they had no king at first, and they had, they had judges, and they said, no, we want a king. God said, no, you, you really don't want one of those. And he, they said, no, we do. And so they had Saul, and then Saul failed, and then they had David, and David sinned, and they still had trouble. They still had struggles underneath David. They still, they never were able to really, there really was never just this golden age of Israel that everything was just hunky-dory and perfect, and nothing, things were never like that. They always had enemies. They were never successful in driving out the enemies, and then they started worshiping their enemies' gods, and it was never, never just perfect. It was never heaven on earth. Um, and then after David came Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom fell apart. 
And not only did the kingdom fall apart, but then there was the divided kingdom, and then the kingdoms fell to Assyria and to Babylon and on and on. So anyway, that, that's kind of the, the brief history of the Old Testament of Israel. Um, but let me tell you where we're at in Malachi. After Malachi, or at the time of Malachi, there was a time that the Israelites who had been exiled got to come back to Jerusalem. And they got to rebuild the temple. So there's kind of a second temple that was built there. There was one built under Solomon, then the temple got to be rebuilt. Um, and then after the temple was rebuilt, uh, and Ezra, and all that time frame, and Zerubbabel, you guys familiar with some of these Old Testament names, right? Um, after, after that, then came Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah is famous for what? You all know this, especially if you've recently watched the movie, um, what is that? Oh, help me. Someone. Where's my kids? Huh? Oh, come on, it's the football movie, right? The Christian football movie. Facing the Giants, right? Nehemiah is famous for, you know, the wall, right, around, around Jerusalem. They rebuilt the wall under, under Nehemiah. Okay, sometime there in the time of Nehemiah is probably the time that Malachi is written. This is about 430 B.C., okay? So, so what had happened is the temple's been restored, they're offering sacrifices again at the temple that hadn't happened for generations. The, the walls around the, the new, around the city, not the new city, around the city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. And there's some structure of the Old Testament, there's some structure of the law that is finally happening again in Israel. And finally, there's priests who are back to their priestly duties. Finally, there are people who are offering incense and offering sacrifices back in the Old Testament, in that, in that temple of the Old Testament. And finally, things are kind of put back together even though they're under food foreign rule, but things are kind of back together. There's some semblance of what used to be. And so you kind of wonder, you know, during this time, is this it? Is this now going to be the golden age of Israel? Are they going to finally, are they going to prosper under the Old Testament law? Are they finally going to be able to, to fulfill all of God's requirements and to follow Him with a whole heart? Are they going to be able to stick to it? Well, if you're very familiar with the Old Testament at all, we know the answer is no. There's never a time under the Old Testament law that was a golden age. The people were never able to keep the Old Testament law, right? It, it never happens. It, it's, it's kind of sad. It's kind of discouraging. But time after time, the people always slide back into old habits. They always slide back into apathy. They always slide back into lethargy. They always slide back into worshiping idols. And it happens generation after generation, despite all that God's done for them. You know, He brought them out of Egypt with these great miracles things that you would think that, that a people would never forget God's faithfulness and His power and His love for them, and yet they slip off into sin and God punishes them by allowing them to be carried off by another nation, and finally they come back together and God allows them to kind of come back together under some foreign leadership and offer sacrifices again. But what happens is they fall back into the same old practices, the same old sins that they had before. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But look with me as we kind of go through. I just want to give you just a, just a uh, real quick view through Malachi. If you would look with me, I don't have this. I want to have this up on the slides. So we're just going to breeze through this really quickly. In Malachi chapter 1, look with, look with me in verse 2. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, let me, let me, let me stop right there for just a minute. All the trouble that Israel has ca caused God 
through all the punishment, through all of the restoration, through God carrying them, through, you know, he, he carried them out of Egypt and, and they went in the desert and what did they do? They whined about, oh, the food's no good here. Oh, we don't have water. You just, we were better in slavery back in Egypt. And there was whining and complaining and, and they're struggling with their sin and no generation can seem to get uh, to the point where they can't fall back into worshiping false gods despite all the things that God's done for them. And yet here at the end of the Old Testament, through all the trouble that Israel's caused him, he says, I have loved you. How appropriate it is today that we sing songs like how he loves us. Amen? Listen, here's the good news of the gospel and the good news about the character of our God. Our sin, our apathy, our lethargy did nothing to quench the love of God for us. Amen? If, if you're going to describe God, in fact, John says this, doesn't he? He says, if you're going to describe God in one word, there's only one word for it. It is, he is love. He loves us. He loves his people. And despite all the trouble, despite all their sin, if you were going to stack up all the sin of all the generations of all the Israelites, nothing could compare and nothing could be a wet blanket to the love of God for his people. He loved them and he loves us. Amen? Uh, what, what a great attribute. What a, what a, thank God for his love. Matter of fact, in some of the letters of Paul, he says, I pray for you that you will gain the Spirit's power. I'm paraphrasing really terribly here. But he says, I pray that you'll have the power of the Holy Spirit to understand how wide and high and long and deep is the love of our Lord, in, is the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God for you. You don't get it. You don't understand it. You're going to need the Holy Spirit's power to be able to comprehend the love of God for you. Amen? It's no small thing that Malachi starts with, I have loved you, says the Lord. How, how great. How great. How encouraging for us today. Okay, let me, uh, but let me tell you on, then beyond this, so God loves them despite all the things that are going on in, in Israel at the time, but let me lead you through it just a little bit. Look with me in uh, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. Let me tell you what that's about. You're going to read it this, this coming week, but, uh, but in, in verses 6 through 13, in that second part of the first chapter, there are blemished sacrifices being offered at the temple, right? What did God require in the Old Testament? He said, you bring me the pure you bring me the unblemished. You bring me the firstborn. You, you bring me the pure, the strong one. And that's the one of your, of your uh, livestock that I want you to offer. But they were bringing in uh, crippled and blind sacrifices, ones that were unsuitable to be, to, be, um, to be sacrificed to God in the temple. In chapter 2, now he goes on to the priests, and Malachi talks about how bad the priests are. The, the priests are just, you know, you t it, it's kind of funny when you read it. It was kind of funny to me, but you read it, and their attitudes are just terrible. The, these are the priests of God who are supposed to be ministering to the people and teaching them about God and helping them to offer their sacrifices, but their, their attitudes toward God are just terrible, and you, you'll read that. And so, uh, anyway, Malachi talks to them about how horrible their attitudes are and uh, uh, that they yeah, just cause God to be despised and humiliated, yeah or he's going to cause them to be despised and humiliated. Then in the second, chapter, second part of chapter 2, um, you have this kind of thing going on where, where, where the men of Israel, he calls them to account and says, you have been unfaithful. And they say, well, how have we been unfaithful? And he says, because you have left the, your wives who are Israelites and you've married younger pagan women. And he says, this is the part of the, of the scripture when you read this through in, in Malachi chapter 3, where he says, God, he says, he says, I hate 
divorce. And so these men were leaving their wives and were marrying pagan, younger pagan women and leaving their wives. And he says, you made a commitment before me, and yet you have walked in unfaithfulness because you've divorced your wives for another. Okay, so that is kind of how chapter 3 goes. So, so here he's got a problem with her sacrifices. He's got a problem with her priests and their attitudes. He's got a problem with the faithfulness of the men of Israel. And then at the end of chapter 3, read with me in that very last verse, verse 17 of chapter, chapter 3, uh, verse 17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Okay, so after all of this, he says, the Lord just says, I am worn out from you guys. You have com- you've just worn me out, and I'm, w- I'm wearied from your words. And so he, this is kind of, the, one of the, uh, kind of one of the themes or one of the um, uh, literary um, uh, tools that, that Malachi uses because he always asks, he always makes an, a, a, an accusation and responds with the people saying, well, how have we done that? So how have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Okay, so he says, you're wearing me out with your words. Well, what words? Where there are these words. These people are going around saying, people who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Uh, you know, I won't go into it very much, but man, this sounds exactly like our society, doesn't it? Where people who do evil things are held up as examples, Right? And the Lord says to the Israelites something very similarly happening in their culture. And he says, you are wearing me out with, these kinds of, with this kind of talk, all right? With this kind of talk where you hold up someone who's done evil as if they were good and as if the Lord was pleased with them. And then he says, or you say, where is the, the God of justice? Um, that's kind of an interesting phrase there that he ends with. How, how is it that, that God is worn out by saying, where is the God of justice? As if, as if he weren't there. So as if people were lying, say, sitting around saying, where is God's justice? Where, when is he going to act? What is he going to do? And he says, you're wearing me out with these words because maybe for several reasons. One is he's brought justice on these people over and over again, and I didn't like it, right? It, it was horrible. It was, it, was, um, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was judgment, and it was terrible. Uh, they suffered under the, the wrath of God, and then they say, where is the God of justice? Well, um, he will be bringing his justice. But anyway, then chapter 3, verse 1, look with me, and, uh, and because this is where the part gets really, this, this part gets uh, much better. Okay, so we end chapter 2 where God says, you are wearing me out with your words. And he brings all these charges against the ways that they're practicing and the ways that they're worshiping. And you know what? Let me pause there for just a moment. He brings all of these things up with the problems really about how the, the, the people of Israel are worshiping. I want to ask you this morning, when you read that this week, I want to ask you, to, you know, it's easier for, to look back at 4th at, at, uh, century B.C. Um, um, Israel and say, oh, what fools. But sometimes we have the same problems with our attitudes, the same problems with, um, with our sacrifices of worship that the Israelites do, right? There are times that you and I give something to God, and instead of giving Him our first fruits, we give Him our leftovers, right? I mean, we do that with our money sometimes, don't we? Because sometimes we think that we have so much, um, so much things, so many things, so many bills, so many things that we have to pay for. Sometimes we wait and we bring God the leftovers. It's like, well, I couldn't give you the first fruits, but I'm going to give you what's left over. Okay? Just pay attention when you're reading what he says about that in Malachi. Sometimes um, the way that we talk about God and the way the priests talked about God and, and the way that he, they talked about him and the, the attitude that was revealed and the disrespect 
that the priests had for them. Sometimes we have a tendency to talk about God in very similar ways. So listen, when you read it, uh, you guys hear me say this all the time, but when you read the Bible and you have God and you have sinful people, which of those two should we relate to when we're reading in the Scriptures? I know my heart's tendency and your heart's tendency is it's, it's like me and God and everybody else. But no, when you read in the Scriptures, which one of those two parties should you connect with? It's really the sinful people. And so when you read those things, it's really important to allow the Bible to read you. Amen? To allow the, this is what James says, right, when he, when he writes. He says, you should look at the, the Word of God is like a mirror, and you should look in it and examine yourself against it. And so whenever you look at the Word of God, you should examine yourself. And one of the ways to do that is you ask him to say, and you say, okay, how am I like that? How am I like the priests? How am I like those unfaithful men? How am I like them? And Lord, heal that part of me, right? Work in that part of me. And, um, and in that way, the Lord can continue to work and do his work of sanctification in you and me. Amen? Oh, boy. Are you all okay? Have I I lulled you to sleep? All right, here we go. You all right? Amen? Amen. All right, thank you, Trey. All right. All right, here we go. Uh, So um, Malachi chapter 2. So what hope is there if Israel can go generation after generation after generation and none of them can follow him well? None of them is perfect. No one can, no generation will follow him for any length of time without falling into idol worship and falling into apathy and lethargy. What is there any hope for any of us uh, to follow the Lord better? You know, uh, um, they just sang that uh, song by um, 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 You Make Beautiful Things. Who's that by? Gunger, there you go. Munger? Unger? Yeah, Gunger. By Gunger. You make beautiful things. I love that. You make beautiful things out of my life. You make beautiful things out of us. What hope is there is that God can make anything beautiful out of anyone? Matthew or Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's quoted and talked about in three of the Gospels. That is whom? John the Baptist that he's talking about. This is a prophecy about John the Baptist coming in the first part of chapter 1, of verse 1. I mean, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. And then the second part of verse 1, it says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. See, all along the plan wasn't that people would be perfect under the law. No one, matter of fact, Paul would write, no one can be made perfect on the law. No one can attain uh, the law. And wh- what am I saying? Is that no one can live by a set of rules that is, that is measurable by God, that God sets as the standard. No one could ever measure up to them. There had to be another plan, and God did have a plan all along. He held up the standard and said, see, no one measures up. I keep going to people in generation after generation after generation. No one is holy. No one can measure up to my standards. There is no one righteous. No, not one, Isaiah says, and it's Paul, quoted by Paul in Romans. There is no one righteous. No one measures up. But thank God that wasn't the plan, right? That was, that was phase one. Phase two was, I'm going to bring my servant. I'm going to bring the Messiah, and he is going to make people righteous. By his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection is the way that you and I are pronounced perfect before God. Not because we had done anything, but because of the perfect life that Jesus lived and the perfect death he died in submission so that he paid the penalty for our sin and we receive, right, he took on death for us. He took on our sin. And what do we get? We get righteousness and life from being in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That very simply is the gospel, isn't it? 
Just what a simple idea, what a simple thing, but what an incredible, what an incredible and powerful thing. But here's the deal is that in Malachi chapter 3, we see again, like over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you see it over and over again, again, is that there's something coming. God's going to do something that's going to change the way that people relate to him forever. And it would be profound. It would be an incredible difference from what had happened before. And there is no hope under the law, but there is hope in the covenant to come. And thank God you and I are on this side of the cross because we know him and we see him. Uh, Okay, not like with our eyes, but we know him and we know his life and we see him in the scriptures. And the promise that was to come is the life of Jesus Christ, the life he lived, that he might be our Savior and our Messiah. Amen? He's come. And so, yes, he is the Lord that we were seeking and he did come to his temple and he was the messenger of the new covenant, uh, the one that we desired to come right? I love the way that's put, um, the one whom you desire, right? The, 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 listen, the Israelites, they must have been sick and tired of the law. They just had to be for generations of never being able to live up to it. And they must have been looking forward to say, there's got to be relief for this somehow. And God promised over and over again in Isaiah and in so many pictures of the Old Testament, so many ways, so many structures of the Old Testament, that something new was coming. This something new was when God came in in the, in, in, in the, in the, as fully God and fully man in the life of Jesus Christ, and he came and bore our sins and changed everything for us. Amen? All right. Okay, so, in, uh, so th- that's kind of the first part of the, of the sermon is that, is that God's love, oh, there are kind of some huge themes here in Malachi. One is that God's love um, overpowers our sin. Amen. But, but the second thing is this, this, is that this coming of this new covenant that would be not, would be very different from the old covenant where people had to try to attain and said, it's something's been attained for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, that Jesus Christ came and died for us and, and put away all of our sin so that we are now a different people. And he is doing his work in us by his Holy Spirit and making us his children. He's making beautiful things of our lives now that couldn't happen under the law. How come? Because we now have the Holy Spirit in us who's sanctifying us and perfecting us to look and to reflect the life of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen? Amen. Um, Okay, yeah, that's all the time we got to spend on that. Let's move on. Um, now, the, the second thing I want to talk about, though, is, is Malachi is going to continue on and talk about the problems with their worship, okay? So he's going to continue on, and he's going to say, I'm, I'm bringing these charges. I'm telling you there's got to be some, some correction. There needs to be some repentance on your part because, because of what he's going to bring up in, Math, in Malachi. I keep trying to say Matthew, I'm sorry. In Malachi chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 6. I love the way he starts this. Here again, you know, so much of the Bible is about this is who God is and this is what he's done for you and here's how you should respond, right? It never starts with, you're such good people, act better. It, it never worked like that, right? It's, it's this is who God is, um, this is what, how you should respond. Okay, so um, Malachi chapter, chapter 3, verse 6. Let me say, um, before I get started in there, ah, I keep doing that, don't I? I'm sorry. Um, I've been here, I've been, I've been your pastor for 10 years. Can you believe that? Do you remember when I had hair? Those were good days. Those were the glory days, really, of Calvary, weren't they? Do you remember that? that that's it. Tim, no, I don't remember you ever having here. I have pictures. Okay. Um, um, I've been here 10 years. I have failed to teach you much about, about generosity and much about giving. So, um, so I, I want to say this about, I want to say a couple of things. One is, uh, I apologize. You know, th- this is why you should never just listen to one person 
for, um, for spiritual teaching, for biblical teaching, right? No one, because none of us is perfect. I, I'm not a perfect Bible teacher, obviously, and you, I know you're, yeah, we know. Um, but uh, none of us is perfect, and there is no one who's perfect. That Jesus Christ is the only one who has the corner on the market of truth, amen? All the rest of us just trying to figure it out, right? Okay, so, um, so none of us has a corner market. It's so important for us to get spiritual t- teaching from different people because we all kind of have holes in our heads. You know what I mean? There are parts of the Scripture that you're very comfortable with, that I'm very comfortable with, and I could talk about all day long, all night. You know, we, we, I could, there's parts of the Scripture I could just go on and on and on about. But there's parts of God's Scripture that, yeah, that I'm not really very interested in, to be real honest. That, that yeah, I know, I know that's important, but they're so, I'm really interested in this. That's really what I want to teach. Well, I leave you lacking if I don't teach in those areas, which is one of the reasons why it's really good to go methodically through the Scriptures like we're trying to do in, in our readings. Um, and you're the same way, honestly. As a matter of fact, you could say all of Christendom, right? Uh, the Presbyterians very much um, in favor of the sovereignty of God, not so much the reformists, especially not so much having to do with the uh, with with uh, with any sort of uh, of uh, choice, right? Uh, um, the um, right the Baptists, we're, we we love missions, man. We'll put a lot of focus on missions and evangelism, but when it comes to really you know being depth and meditating on the scriptures, you're not going to hear a lot of that from a lot of just really traditional Baptist places. Is that good or bad? I don't know, but none of us has a corner in the market. It's good for you to get teaching from the scriptures from. From, from a variety of people. Now, be careful. You don't want some idiot who's, you know, not, who has no idea what the Scripture says, but that's not what I'm talking about. But you need some, you know, some good Bible teachers um, is who we should all sit under, including your pastor. Okay. But anyway, after 10 years, I'm finally going to teach a little bit on generosity. You've been waiting for that? Are you excited? It's a good day. All right. You've been waiting 10 years for this, some of you guys. Huh? Yeah. What? Hey, and... <laughs> Okay, Okay. so Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Let me tell you about the goodness of the Lord here. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the problems that, that the Israelites were having. I, the Lord, do not change. Thank the Lord he doesn't change. You know what? What, what if God woke up, you know, went to bed this morning, he was happy with us, he wakes up tomorrow and is like, man, I can't stand that guy anymore, right? That would be bad, but he does not change. And so, you know, part of the great thing about this, he remembers his promises to the Israelites. He remembers his promises to us every day. He never forgets every day. He's unchanging. And, and so he promised that he would love, um, he would love um, um, Jacob, and so he continues to love Jacob. Amen? He, he said that he would, he would um, if you believed, if you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would never count your sins against you, right? And so tomorrow, you never have to be afraid that he's forgotten his promise. When, when we're caught up in the rapture or in the second coming of Jesus Christ, right, when that, when that happens, none of us is ever going to have to stand there in fear for what's happened. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can just say, he took my sins for me. He took my sins, and I stand before you, not on my own accord, not on my own merit, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did in perfect life and in perfect death. And so I stand before you, a man who's been cleansed and holy before you, accepted as your son, because of the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll never be afraid, never have to be afraid in the presence of God. Amen? Not so for those who don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but for you and I, he will never change. He will never forget his promise. Amen? I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O servants of Jacob, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Okay. 
Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that great? God says, after all the trouble they've caused him, he says, if you'll turn to me, I'll turn to you, and we can restore this relationship. That's the, that's the, that's the character of God. But you ask, how are we to return? Here's that same literary uh, mechanism, that same literary tool again. How are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, he says in verse 8. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Okay, really quickly, let's stop there. God's accusing them of being thieves, the Israelites. Why is he accusing them of being thieves? Why is God accusing the Israelites of being thieves? They're withholding their tithes. They're withholding their offerings. Um, God had said, really, almost from the very beginning, the firstborn, the first fruit, the tenth, those belong to me. Actually, you know, uh, certainly the Scripture teaches that everything actually belongs to the Lord. He just lets us use part of it, right? He just lets us use some of it. But here, in particular, he's saying, the, the tithe belongs to me. And when you don't give the full tithe, and when you don't give your offering, you're thieving from me right? That's, a, that's kind of a bad deal. You know, it, it's one thing to, to think that you're withholding uh, money from the temple or from the church, but when God says you're stealing from me, honestly, we kind of hate to hear that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, that's a big deal. Okay. Um, and so he says, because you're, because you're withholding your offerings, because you're withholding your, th- your tithes, he says, you're under a curse. Well, we're going to read a little bit more about what that curse looks like. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only part in Scripture, the only thing that God says about you should test me. He says, you should try me. Matter of fact, there are other parts of the Scripture. You guys know it when Jesus was tempted, right? Uh, that God should not, be, should not be tempted, should not be uh, tested. Uh, but God says about, about this, about giving, about tithing, he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open uh, the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it, in verse 10. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Okay. Let me pause there for just a moment. So he's, very simple language here, right? He says, you're withholding your offering, and so you're under what? A curse. He says, if you'll bring your whole tithe, then what? There will be blessing. There will be plenty for you. And he says even this, he says, try me. Test me. Try it. See if I won't be faithful to what I've told you. You, you try it and you see. Uh, and I think it's interesting, some of the language in there. He says, um, he'll pour out blessing, and in verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. There's something about the point that you get to when you can actually give to God, the, the, you know, how you're, you, how you're supposed to give to God, that things start to go better with your finances than when you thought you didn't have enough money to tithe. Let me tell you a quick story personally. Brent and I, for... Oh, goodness gracious, let me think. I don't know, 10 or 12 years. We're, um, can I just talk real frankly with you? Is that all right? We have some visitors here this morning. Let me just apologize to begin with here. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I try to be real honest and really real, and so I'm sorry if that's shocking. I, don't, I know a lot of guys think that they kind of need to, to, to um, kind of be more respectable. Uh, I, I'm, I, just not, uh, um, I just don't feel that way. I think I need to be real with you because we need to be able to re- be real with each other because we're all sinners, 
Amen? We are. We are all sinners who are in search of a Savior who can cover over all of the problems that we have. Amen? And we have one, thank God. But he won't cover over one that you're trying to hide, right? Um, so anyway, so, uh, and, and me too. Okay, uh, Brent and I were idiots with money for 10, 12 years. Morons, idiots. I can't. I can't use a strong enough word. Um, not in church. Um, but we were just stupid with money. We, we we were late with things all the time. And um and and I could tell you even more stories about things and and whatnot about how much how much how much trouble we had in managing our money. Um, but but I won't get much more into that. But but let me tell you, something happened then um, several years ago now. But. Something happened where it just struck me, and I don't remember where I was. I don't remember if I was reading something. I don't think I was. It just struck me, I am dishonoring God. I've made a commitment that I have these people who offer me a service, and I've made a commitment. I've made a, I've made a, um, I've made a decision. I've made a, a contract with them that they'll offer me the service, and I will pay them by a particular date, right? If I keep missing that date and I keep missing my part of the agreement, how is that honoring to God? Honestly, it was a lack of integrity in my life. Yeah. It was a lack of integrity in my life. It was, the, the, the fact was is that I wanted the service, but I didn't want to pay for it in the time frame that they, that they wanted to, right? that they wanted me to. I, I didn't want to pay for it in that time. Matter of fact, I, so, many, so many problems managing our money that we were slipping late on virtually everything all the time. Okay, uh, so I was very much convicted. And let me tell you, there was one morning when Brenda... Came and she used to kind of keep the books for us, and, and uh, she came to me one Sunday morning after church and, and said, I've got us in real trouble, and I don't know how to get out, but you're going to have to do this. And I said, I need to confess to you, I've not been doing my job as the, as the man in this family, and I need to repent. But I said, I want to tell you, the Lord was just moving us at the same time in different places. It was really cool. I said, this morning, I, I gave, I, I wrote out three things that I want some, some other men in our church to hold me accountable to. The first one is, I want to always know what the balance is in my checkbook, right? If you're not watching something, if you're not, if you're not watching it, you're not going to be able to change it, okay? That, that's the first lesson. So I, I gave these things to three men in our church, and I said, I want you to ask me this every time you see me. I want you to ask me what the balance is in my checking account. The next thing is, I want you to ask me if I'm current on all of my bills, the third thing is, I really can't remember because that was a long time ago. But anyway, those two are pretty good, even if I can't remember the third one. But that morning um, began a real change for me. And, and here's the deal is that I, I just decided I'm dishonoring God the way, that we're, the way that we're living is dishonoring to God. And I want to honor Him with my whole life. He saved my soul. How could I not honor Him with something so trivial as money, Right? How could I not honor him with something so trivial? And so Brent and I got to the point, and it really didn't take very long. After about four months of really actually focusing on it, we got to the point where we could tithe without sweating. You know what I mean? Do you, you, you ever write a tithe check and you're kind of sweating? Like, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but there we go. You, you know? but, uh, and, and I don't mean to tithe without sweating like it shouldn't cost you something. Listen, I don't care if you make $10,000 a year or $100,000 a year. 10% is always going to be a lot, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big check. No matter what you're making, it's always going to be 10% is a lot of what you're, of what you're giving, of, of what you have, right? That's a, that's a lot of your income, it, it, and it always will be. I don't, I don't care what you're making. It's, there's always going to be a, an act of faith when you write out the check or you go get the cash to put into the in the tithe. Amen? Is this true to you? Yes. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Right? It's, that's, that's a commitment, right? That's a commitment. 
But um, I decided um, several years ago um, that I was not, I was dishonoring God and I wanted, um, I wanted to honor him with, with something so trivial as, as money. Um, we'll leave that for another time. Uh, but you know, here's the deal. Is he's changed everything for me. How can I not honor him with money? I mean, really, like, I've got to hold on to every dime. I can't let it go. I, you know, I can't give to God because I've got it all tied up in all these debts. I've got it all tied up in all this stuff that I want, and so I can't give, really? What kind of sense does that make? It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, really, at all. Um, let me, I just want to hit on a couple of verses from 2 Corinthians. Um, if you want to read more about this topic, I, I, let me suggest to you, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul goes into a lot of detail about giving generously, and actually a lot of the language that's used here in, in Malachi is used again when Paul's writing to the Corinthians about God's blessing for generosity. But I just want to share a couple of verses with you this morning. Uh, the first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Um, Jason's going to have it on the screen here before me, but it, for me, but it, it says this, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnest, and in your love for us. Okay, Paul's saying, you guys are, your life is changed by the, by the, by the, by the life of Jesus Christ, by, by the Holy Spirit that's living in you, and he's changed your life. He's rearranged your priorities. He's changed the values in your life so that, that now you're excelling in your faith and in your speech and in your knowledge and in your earnestness and in your love. And he says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Don't you love that? He's, why shouldn't the life of Christ change your view of money? Well, honestly, it should change everything, including how you handle and how you manage and how you view money. It ought to touch. The, the life of Christ is so, and the, and the gospel, the message of the gospel itself, and the fact that you're so loved by God that he sent his son to, to, to die for you and die for me ought to be reflected in every, it ought to touch, it ought to change every area of your lives, including the way that you and I view money. Amen. And then the last thing I want to look at one more verse in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. Listen to what he says about generosity here. Uh, okay, l- let me tell you what's happening. Is that Paul's writing to the church in Corinth to ask them to give to support some other churches. I think it's in Macedonia. I can't really remember. Some other churches that were poorer, some, some that were really suffering from poverty. And he's asking them to give. He's asking them to give a special gift to them uh, that Paul or, or Paul's uh, calls Paul's Paul's guys would be delivering to them, to the other poor churches. And so he's asking for them to do this service of generosity, of giving. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is supplying the needs of God's people, right? That's the first part, is it? Part of what you're doing is you're helping with felt physical needs, and that's a beautiful, godly thing. Amen? Uh, here at the church, you know, we take, you know, the t- at Calvary, we take uh, all of your tithes and all of your offerings, and we tithe also here. We give to missions. We give to Canyon Cares. We, we, you know, we have a food pantry that you guys are just generous with to, to support, but uh, we give also. We tithe also with whatever we get for an offering here, and so the money that you give here at Calvary, we want to be really careful with, goes to support uh, missionaries in Lesotho, Africa, who take around food and take around people who are injured and hurt, who need medical attention, and they they take around, you know, they, they take missionaries around to some places on earth that are very difficult to get to. They're moving to Uganda, actually, next summer. But anyway, they're there in, in Lesotho now. 
Um, the money that you give also goes to support ministries at, at WT, at Emerald College, uh, the BGC2, Baptist General Convention of Texas, and, and other places. But, um, and then also to just support that we have money here on hand that we can give to people who need it here in our community. But anyway, um, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God people, God's people, but is also, listen with, to this, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Okay, let me, this is kind of different than the way we think in the West, but what he's talking about here is that the way that you give is a reflection. Your generosity is a reflection of the thankful heart that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? When you give, it's, it's an expression of thankfulness. And, and you, on your part and also on the other people who are going to be receiving it. But on your part, it's an expression of, thanks, of thanksgiving towards God. Okay, it, it, this is real simple. If we're real thankful, we're going to be really generous. Right? If we're not real thankful, then the, the way that you give is going to reflect it. I, I, and I, I apologize. I know that steps on toes, uh, but, but I don't know how else to do this than to admonish you with the Scriptures. And, I, I, you know, I'd li- I always like to be more, more uh, sometimes softer with you guys, more, more subtle with you guys. Uh, but but, but, but I've got to tell you, I've got to teach you what the Word of God says. Is it's a reflection of the generosity, that's in your, the thankfulness that's in your heart, how you give. All right? All right. How was that? Not too painful? Teaching on generosity? Okay. L- let me just tackle one sl- quick thing last. Is this, is that in the Old Testament, the tithe, the 10%, was not the upper bound on giving. It was the bare minimum, right? There were other things that were given through, through, uh, through sacrifices, through offerings, through all of their sacrificial, through, through some of their feasts, and even that money, that money was given. In the New Testament, I've heard a lot of people argue, a lot of really good people who don't want to be in church because they don't want to hear um, teachings like this on money, right? I, I know a guy who absolutely refused to be in church because he didn't want to hear anyone telling him that tithing was a New Testament idea. Um, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to respond to that except to say, you know how the Old Testament said, um, do this and this and this to be kind to your neighbor, right? And in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he says, love even your enemy, in the Old Testament, it says you're supposed to be giving this, this, and this, and this. You're supposed to be giving a tithe. In the New Testament, um, it, he teaches by saying, excel in generosity, right? Whatever was the, the shadow of the Old Testament and its law and ritual has now been replaced by, because of the love of Jesus Christ, you show generosity like he did. Well, how much generosity would Jesus show? He gave everything, right? And Paul would say, be like Jesus, be generous like Jesus. Whether or not there's a 10%, I don't really care. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But I will say the New Testament command is be generous. Live as generous people. Let people see it as a, as a show of thankfulness of what the Lord has done in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and, uh, and we'll be dismissed here this morning. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, what, what could we do? But we look at, the, at Malachi, and we look at all the things that are going on with the Israelites, all the trouble they had, and all the apathy, all the continually just slipping back into sin. And what could we say, Lord? But we relate to that. We, we're, we're the same way. We can get apathetic. We can get to the point that we go back to, to, sin, to sin. But, Father, we want something better. Uh, and so we thank you for this new covenant that we're in and your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have hope. 
um, for you to sanctify us and to do beautiful things in our lives, to make changes in our hearts, to make us from people who are, who are too afraid to, to face our money problems or, or people who, are, um, who, who tend to be greedy, even none of us likes to think of ourselves that way. And instead, we want, us to make you a, we want you to make us a generous people. We want the life of Jesus Christ to be reflected in our lives, in the way that we handle money, the way that we treat people, the way that we love people. We want to reflect the life of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know when, we, when we're not doing that, we're living uh, like we want. We're living as though we're our own Lord and not you. And so, Father, we just confess this morning. We just repent and say, Lord, we want something different. We want to walk in generosity. We want to walk in love. We want to walk in thankfulness. We want the Lord Jesus, we want, we want the changes that he's make, made in our lives, we want them to, be, to show on the outside. And so, Lord God, change our hearts, we pray, where we need it. Change our, our hearts, change our practices, Lord God, we pray, and uh, be honored and glorified by our lives. We ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. Great to see you all this morning. And uh, congratulations again to the Thiessen family and their uh, new addition. We're happy for you guys. Congratulations. Y'all have a great week.